For generations, the Shumash tribal nation have been stewards of a vital marine ecosystem along the central coast of California. This area, which borders San Luis Obispo County and Santa Barbara County, is home to species like blue whales, black abalone, snowy plovers, and is an important part of the tribe's rich traditions and culture. That's why tribal leaders have pushed for decades to designate this area as a national marine sanctuary. Now it's in the final stages of the approval process, which would make it the first tribally nominated national marine sanctuary in the country. Joining me now to talk more about the importance of this region and the collaborative research they're doing there are my guests, Stephen Palumbi, Professor of Marine Sciences at Stanford University, based in Monterey, California, and Violet Sage Walker, Chairwoman of the Northern Chumash Tribal Council. Welcome to Science Friday. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having us. And Violet, I'd like to start with you, and maybe you can talk about the significance of this area receiving a marine sanctuary designation. I know it's not quite there yet, but this is pretty important, right? It's vital to our community and our culture in the coast of California that this area um, receives special protection. My father was the original nominator for the Shumash Heritage National Marine Sanctuary proposal, and since then has passed away and has told me to make sure that I see this campaign and designation completed because this area is, for lack of better words, just a magical place. It's one of a kind in the world. And with all the animals and species that you had mentioned earlier, it also is the home to the Shumash people. Um, we have no other homeland. This is a critically important time that we protect the coast of California from all the dangers we're experiencing with climate change, but also offshore industrialization of the coast too. So, so this would protect against offshore development? Most people think of offshore development as offshore oil, but this goes further, would also protect the coastline from the intrusion of offshore wind on our coastline. So we would have this continuum of marine sanctuaries from the Channel Islands all the way up the coast of California that provides safe passage for the migratory whales and fish species like the salmon and halibut and tuna, the southern protected sea otters, and all of the smaller fish species that we think of like the squid and anchovies and sardines. And, and so we would create this, essentially this corridor of protection, keeping all industrialization off of the coastline and out um, potentially 35 miles offshore. So, so Steve, as a marine biologist, this is obviously important to you as well. Violet was talking about this corridor that would be created going from one designated area to another. What else is, is so special about this area? Well, you know, it's, it's an incredibly diverse area. Marine life just abounds in it. One of my colleagues here um, at the Hopkins Marine Station, Barbara Block, has called this the Blue Serengeti, where, where there's mm -hmm. just migrating huge animals, the whales, uh, huge tunas, but also an incredible diversity of fish, part of which are in, in fisheries, but also part of which is in the kelp forest, which just kind of goes along the coast. And that is one of the longest forests in, in North America. It stretches all the way from Canada down into Mexico along the coast. It has thousands of species in it that are a vibrant oh. part of that ecosystem. Wow. And, and we're talking about a huge area here. It's about 7,000 miles? Yeah, 7,000 square miles. You know, I think of it as six times the size of Yosemite or 156 miles of coastline. 
Wow. So, Steve, one of the things you're working on with the tribe is to collect eDNA or environmental DNA in the region. Can you, first of all, start off by just telling us what exactly is eDNA? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What is that? Well, in a lot of places, marine life, uh, lakes, oceans, forests, soil, organisms kind of leave little bits and pieces of themselves behind. In, in our case, it's scales, it's little legs from, from crustaceans, stuff from snails. It floats around in the, in the little bits in water and it carries the DNA of those organisms in it, those little pieces. So you can collect that filter out those little pieces, extract the DNA, sequence them, and then you can get a reading for the species that were there. So, so it helps you understand the diversity of the species in this area? It helps you see that diversity, which is really important because there's, there's thousands of species, and we're talking, like Violet said, across an incredible area. So the ability to monitor it and look at it and, and track it over time, particularly in the face of climate change, is one of the important aspects of the research that the Chumash community and we are, are, are putting together. I'd like to talk more about the collaboration, Violet. How, how did Steve and his team build trust with you and the rest of your community to successfully work together on this huge research project? Well, that's a, that's a great question because that is the key to a successful relationship with the tribes. And, and what Steve did is he just, he just kept showing up. At first, we were like, what is eDNA? And who is Steve? And then he just kept showing up and calling us and emailing us and writing to us. And I'll tell you what tipped the scale was when I was an invited to go to our ocean conference in Palau. The local people there, they knew Steve and they spoke highly of him. And I'm like, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to, you know, reach out to Steve and, and it ended up, we just basically adopted him into, you know, our community and it's worked out really well. You know, the best vouching for his character and what we could do um, together happened was with other indigenous people first. Huh. So, so Steve, what has this experience with the tribe been like for you? Oh, it's just been uh, amazing. And I really appreciate those words from Violet. And the, the flip side is, has been that, you know, I did kind of call and text and show up and, and be there and listen and kind of be present. And, and this group of amazing people just slowly just folded me in. It's, it was so lovely. And then we got to talk. And when we realized that we had different things to talk about, but we could actually talk back and forth about things that we all cared about. It's not going to be agenda driven. It's going to be conversation driven. And, and that was just a great way to, to begin this talking about things that the science that we do can explain and the, and the things that the traditional ecological knowledge that the tribe has can, can come together with. Yeah, and you've relied on that historical knowledge from tribal members, right? You know, we have relied on it and we have talked about it. And we've explored it in ways that really just open up these vistas of, of really interesting, like, I don't know, nerdy little biology facts sometimes. <laughs> and, then, and then in these broad things of like, oh, yes, there's this understanding of the oceanography and the wind patterns of that whole coastline. Yeah, and, and there's some specific examples too, some various species that, that you've been able to locate with help from tribal members. One of our first set of samples, uh, we had 
uh, a combination of species. We had sardines in this sample. We also had pelicans in this sample because the pelicans dive in and out of the water all the time. We had sea lions in the sample. Um, and then we had a whole set of little tiny things that are the, the basic food of the, of the ecosystem. And, and we can kind of bring those to the, the tribal members and we can talk about, um, you know, how, how do you see this? And one of those was grunion. And so we've been having this great conversation about the grunion, a little, little silvery fish that spawns in the intertidal on the beach and just talk back and forth about, well, how does this fit into, into your knowledge and your culture and, and where do we find it? This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. And community members, Violet, have, have been research assistants and they've been helping to collect samples too. That's right. That's been one of the fun parts of this project is we've been training some of our younger um, community members and tribal members how to do the sampling. And we've even taken that to the next step. And we've decided to make traditional watercraft that is outfitted um, and rigged to do the sampling. So if you imagine a very ancient way of traveling, like um, with the hookalea or some of these ancient voyaging canoes, set up to do modern scientific research and sampling, it's gotten some of the young people really interested in what we're doing. That's one of the coolest parts about this whole thing is using some of these traditional vessels. And in part, Violet, it, I mean, it's not just for getting the young people to, to learn, but they can sometimes go places that, that bigger research vessels can't. This is one of the pitches that I've been made to this project is that we can use these traditional watercraft to sample in places that we're not going to be disturbing the wildlife, like inside kelp beds. We're reducing carbon emissions. We're also reducing the cost of doing the research and sampling because hiring a vessel and chartering vessels and having an entire team go out is sometimes cost prohibitive. So using traditional watercraft and using indigenous people to do the sampling allows us to do more sampling at a lower cost. Before we run out of time, I'd like to ask you both if you feel as though this can be a, a model that can be used elsewhere. Steve, I know that you've done this sort of work elsewhere in the world. Do you think that there are other spots in the U.S. where tribal communities can work with university researchers in this way? A absolutely. And that's one of the really exciting and fun things about this. Uh, this new sanctuary is kind of sandwiched between two other sanctuaries that have been there for a while. And the idea that this collaboration with the Chumash can um, result in new techniques, streamlined efforts, uh, more cost-effective efforts that can be you know, done in a bigger um, spatial fashion, uh, that that knowledge and development can come from the Chumash community and us and then spread to the other sanctuaries is really fun to think about. Yeah. Tell me what you're thinking about this, Violet. Well, I'd like to think of this as like a pilot program for what we could help with around the world. And we call all the other marine sanctuaries and marine protected areas um, like sister sanctuaries around the world. So I like to think of this as a pilot to um, show what can be done and also to show how to incorporate indigenous communities into meaningful aspects of the blue economy by providing them with training and jobs and meaningful engagement with research and science. Is there anything that you really hope to learn in the future through this project? Well, I really think that this is an opportunity for the Shumash people to highlight how our culture and our heritage we can help reverse and help identify the, the most drastic effects of climate change on the coast here. And so I'd really like our people to be at the forefront of uh, new discoveries and solutions for addressing our climate problems. 
Violet Sage Walker is chairwoman of the Northern Chumash Tribal Council, and Stephen Palumbi is professor of marine sciences at Stanford University based in Monterey, California. I'd like to thank you both for sharing the story with us, and best of luck on this federal designation. Thank you. Fabulous to be here. Thank you very much.